The title of today's sermon is Divorce, Is It Lawful? and is taken from Matthew 19, verses 1 through 12. I'm going to be speaking on a topic that has touched most of our lives, some of us very deeply, divorce. Uh, You might not know this, but my wife was previously divorced before we married, and so it's something that we wrestled with in our own lives. So if you would, let's pray and ask God to direct us in our study of his precious word. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to be together, to delve into the word of God. May the Holy Spirit have freedom to teach us, to guide us, to direct us into the deeper, abundant life that you've called us to. Help us to walk in harmony with your ways, to be disciples who follow you, Lord, into the most sensitive areas of our lives. Be our teacher, we would pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you've ever stood as a bride or groom in front of that judge or minister, you've heard the words, until death do us part. Perhaps your marriage didn't last that long. After all, our culture no longer believes in the promises that are made or to be kept. Such promises are no longer considered a priority in marriage. Since the embrace of victimhood by our culture, no one needs to feel compelled to keep their word. This culture lives by feelings rather than by truth. So then, when when a person has made a promise, but no longer really feels good about that promise... In fact, the promise has made them feel worse about themselves, and it's inevitable that a divorce is on the horizon. What was once adoration has now turned to repulsion. Mutual respect to disdain and love to hate. However, it can be difficult to accept the notion that what you once thought was so right has now turned out to be so wrong. What was once an all-consuming love and passion for another person has morphed into a reviling and a rejection of that person. Those hurt feelings have led to extreme anger and finally to dismissal. Promises once made with such sincerity have turned to four stinging words. The four ugliest words, I think, in the English language together. These words should never, ever pass from your lips. However, divorce has become part of our cultural pastime. It's not a new phenomenon, however. We find that this conflict between couples ending in divorce goes all the way back to the time of Moses. Back to the days when men held all the power in a marriage. They could divorce their wives on a whim, without notice, by just stepping outside of the house and finding some witnesses and pronounce those four ugly words three times. I divorce thee, I divorce thee, I divorce thee. The wife would be defenseless against such an end to her marriage. The right to divorce belonged to men then, 
And it was a hot topic amongst the rabbis on how to handle divorce, who could be divorced. The Lord Jesus addresses this question because it's so important several times within the Gospels. We saw this before in our study of the book of Matthew in chapter 5. And now here, once again, it comes up, it crops up in Matthew 19. However, this time, the question is put forth by the Pharisees. Now, the Greek word that's translated into English as divorce is, to, is in Greek, apostasi. It sounds like the English word apostate, doesn't it? It literally means to be removed spatially or from a place or the center of a relationship. For a married couple, that would mean leaving your previous standing as a couple and the fellowship that was yours with a break. Well, with that, with that as our introduction, would you turn with me to Matthew 19 in your Bible or in your little um, handheld device? Or you can follow along in our Pew Bible on page 979. As you know, Jesus has spent the better part of two years or so in the region of the Galilee. During that time, he has become wildly popular as an itinerant preacher. Many of those who listen to his teaching have come to believe in him as the promised Messiah of Israel. Of course, Jesus has become the subject of great criticism. He's been critiqued by the religious elite, the powers that be. These religious elites felt threatened by his ministry and what they viewed as their power being eroded. This brought about great battles conflicts between the Pharisees and the other religious elites, the Sadducees and the scribes and others. And many incidents that we find recorded in the scriptures are between Jesus and these religious elites of Israel. Today we have a confrontation over the theological question of divorce. They've offered many questions to Jesus, always with one desire to entrap him. They asked him political questions. They asked him doctrinal questions. They asked Jesus ethical questions and also even personal questions about his upbringing. You'll remember, for example, that Jesus was asked whether or not Israelis, Jews, should pay tax to Rome. He was also questioned about a woman who had been married seven times and all seven of the brothers had died. To whom would she be married to in heaven? These are the kinds of questions. They're not real questions. What they were were to meant to entrap Jesus, to get him in trouble with the people or authorities. The religious leaders thought that no matter how he answered those deep and troubling questions, it would be his undoing. Now, he didn't refuse to answer the questions, but oftentimes he would make uh, applications or insinuations in his answers that were hard for the people to understand. Here we have a question about divorce. And implicit or buried within that is a question about remarriage. Matthew continues the narrative of Jesus' movement before we get to that question, in which he reveals the location of the question in verses 1 and 2. 
In Matthew 19, verse 1, we read that when Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and he came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. These words are recorded in the ones that he had just finished, chapters 16 through 18. Now, Matthew tells us that Jesus departs from Capernaum. If you'd put that map up for me, I'd appreciate it. From Capernaum to Jerusalem. You can see Capernaum. This is the region of the Galilee. This is the region of the Decapolis. He departs Capernaum going underneath the Sea of Galilee. He crosses over the Jordan River and he heads down to where uh, Jericho would be on the other side of the Jordan River and he then travels to Jerusalem from the south, from the southeast. Normally, if you were traveling, the shortest would be directly from north, straight to Jerusalem. But Jesus travels this way on purpose. All of those in the entourage that were traveling with him do the same. Why is that? They were trying to avoid Samaria and the Decapolis in order to avoid becoming unclean before they went to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. So, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, as we saw last week, to accomplish, to finish the mission that his father sent him on, which began at Bethlehem. So this is not the first time that Jesus will have traveled to Jerusalem. He's been there many times. You'll recall that he began going there with his parents when he was about the time or the age of being bar mitzvahed in his youth. But this would be his last trip to Jerusalem. This would be his last Passover because he would become the Passover lamb. He likely was traveling with a group of pilgrims on their way to the city of David in order to celebrate the Passover as required by the law. We read in verse 1 that he departed from the Galilee and he headed to the region of the Judea beyond the Jordan. That's Perea. And as I've shown you on the map, that was to avoid being defiled by Gentiles, by avoiding Samaria and the Decapolis. So they go underneath, they scoot underneath the Sea of Galilee, and they go on the other side of the Jordan, then down, and they head towards uh, Jerusalem by crossing into the Transjordan. And that is the deepest location on earth that ends up in the Dead Sea. Very hot. And they travel from that deep, hot region up the mountains and into the city of Bethany and then on to Jerusalem, as I showed you on the map. They will enter the city of Jerusalem from the south in order to fulfill Isaiah chapter 40, which predicted that this would happen rather than an approach from the north. So such a journey took an incredible amount of energy and time. Now, Matthew excludes many of the events that took place on this journey. Those are recorded by Luke in chapters 19, or excuse me, 9 through 18. In verse 2 of Matthew 19, we read that large crowds followed him, and he healed many of them. Now, we've seen this throughout the ministry of Jesus. The people flock to him. They've heard about him and what he can do. And he heals them and then he teaches them. He did wonderful things throughout the whole land of Israel, especially the 
the region of the Galilee, and the, and the nation was abuzz about this itinerant preacher. So people came seeking relief from him from all the disease and maladies that people suffered with at this time. And, and those occasions, on those occasions, they were able to witness his miracles and his divinity. However, lurking in the background of almost every one of these events were the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the other religious elites, the enemies of Jesus who wanted to rid themselves of this threat to their power. Verse 3 tells us that the Pharisees were following him on this occasion. Some Pharisees came to Jesus. Now, when we read words like that, we usually think of people coming to Jesus with good or noble purposes. But here the, the Pharisees came for nefarious reasons. In, verse, in the first nine verses, we find three questions posed of Jesus. The first two of the questions are asked by the Pharisees about the central issue that we will look at today, and that is the legality of divorce. The last question is an obvious question that's asked by the disciples of Jesus. The logical question that follows the first two questions by the Sadducees or by the Pharisees. So in verse two we learn that they came testing Jesus. Circle that word in your Bible if you have a pen or pencil. And what do they ask? They ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now notice, for any reason at all. The word that's used there, test, shows their lack of sincerity. They came to antagonize Jesus, to entrap Jesus. They weren't looking for a real answer to the question. And in fact, the Greek word that's used there, perisio, speaks of an attempt to obtain information by catching a person in a mistake. It's the exact same verb that was used of Satan when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness. There was nothing more. This was nothing more than an attempt to catch him in a gaffe. For just a moment, when I first read this in the text... I thought Matthew might have been speaking prophetically about an FBI interview of a Trump surrogate, but I was wrong. And then I thought, maybe he was talking about my wife Sue when she questioned me. She tries to entrap me, too, with questions like, Honey, what happened to all those chocolate chip cookies I made? Did you eat them all? And I think to myself, holy cow, Houston, we've got a problem. How do I answer this? Of course, their questions were totally bogus. They were just trying to catch him in a faux pas. All of the questions of the religious elites were asked for the same purpose, to undermine Jesus' authority. And so when they asked this Jewish teacher about divorce, it's to entrap him. The first question that they asked was a question, can a man divorce his wife for any reason? Now, again, you must remember that women had no rights at this time. Men ran the show. How things have changed. Now, lying behind this event, you must recall, is what happened to John the Baptist. You'll recall that John confronted Herod over his adulterous relationship with his brother's wife. 
it didn't end so well for John. It ended up costing him his head. So it seems that anyone that goes about asking questions about the legality of divorce might run into problems because you're going contrary to the cultural norms of the day. The practice was at this time that a Jewish man could annul or divorce his wife by simply going outside, as I said, and stating, I divorce thee, I divorce thee, I divorce thee. My things have gotten tougher today, haven't they? The Jewish legal scholars of the day upheld this practice as being totally legal, and a wife had no remedy or appeal. So the Pharisees come to Jesus and try to entrap him by asking him this. Is it legal? You see, no matter how the Lord answered that question, he was going to be in trouble with half the people. Israel was divided over social issues just the same way America is divided over social issues. Homosexuality, abortion, divorce, so on and so forth. Let me give you a little bit of background here. Judaism had two major sects at this time. Now, you're going to have to stay with me here. Don't close your eyes and go to sleep. There was what was called the School of Hillel, which taught that a man could divorce his wife for any reason under the sun. If she burned the shalah, that would be toast in Hebrew, he could dump her. If she didn't look good in the morning, he could divorce her. If he just felt irritated with her, he could say, I divorce thee, I divorce thee, I divorce thee. And I would like to equate the Hillel, school of Hillel, with the liberal Democrats of our day. Then on the other side was another school called the School of Shammai. They taught that a man could only divorce his wife if she was guilty of some sexual sin. And I would guess that Jesus didn't want to get dragged into this debate. So you have the School of Hillel, the liberals on one side, and you have the School of Shammai, the conservatives or the Republicans of their day on the other This was simply a canard, a a trap, a test that he could never satisfy people. And also in the background, if you're going to understand this, was the Old Testament law, the Mosaic Canon. The 613 specific laws of the Old Testament. So they're asking him about the Mosaic law when they ask, is it lawful? That sounds kind of similar to the debates that we have in America today about the legality of such things as the Second Amendment. Is it constitutional for you to own a gun at home or not? The liberals say no, the conservatives say yes. Well, the constitution of Judaism was the Mosaic Law. And the Pharisees were basically lawyers. So what we have here is a bunch of scholars of the Mosaic Law coming and questioning this neophyte in their mind, this backyard itinerant uh, evangelist from, Gal- from the Nazareth about the law. He was just a bumpkin. What does he know? They believed that their commitment to the law of Moses was greater than all others. They, in fact, kept every detail of the law. So the question for Jesus, was it lawful? Behind this was Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 to 5, which you can see on the screen behind me. When a man takes a wife and marries her, 
it happens that she finds and it, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. He can then write her a certificate of divorce, put it in her hand, and send her out from the house. And she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled. For it's an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. When a man takes a new wife, he shall not go out to the army or be charged with any duty He shall be free at home for one year and shall give happiness to his wife whom he has taken. So you see the extent of the law of Moses dealing with marriage in this one passage. There are several others as well. Again, this interpretation of the Mosaic law, the constitution of Judaism, was seen from two different angles. The school of Shammai held that divorce was only lawful when the husband found found some indecency in her or sexual unfaithfulness. You can go to the next point on the outline. Well, on the other hand, the school of Hillel granted divorce for any reason. Now, underlined in that text that I showed you were what that was based on. One group emphasized the phrase, she finds no favor in his eyes. Hence, you can divorce for any reason. The other side... Uh, emphasized the second portion of that. He found some indecency in her, and so he could divorce her for only one reason, sexual sin. So they're asking Jesus the question, what school do you agree with? Whose interpretation do you agree with? The school of Shemaiah, the school of Hillel. That's really what's behind this text. Of course, they expect Jesus to pick one and incriminate himself with half of the population. The men, of course, would be in favor of the school of Hillel, and the women would be in favor of the school of Shammai. But as these religious elites often did, they were asking the wrong question. I find that's true whenever I teach the Bible. People seem to always be asking the wrong question. The question they should have asked Jesus was this. Is there any way that a couple can restore a crumbling marriage? That's the question that should have been asked if they were sincere. And the God-centered answer to that would, of course, be yes, there is a way. But the fact is Jesus had already just previously to this addressed that very question. You'll recall He said you can fix all broken relationships in Matthew 18. How? By offering forgiveness unconditionally. Both husband and wife, no matter who's the offender and who's the offendee, offer forgiveness, seek forgiveness and restoration. That's how to heal a broken marriage. And the question about its lawfulness of divorce becomes mute. Now, in verse 4, Jesus offers his answer to that question directly when he says, shocking, the Pharisees, by the way, have you not read? Now, I don't know what tone of voice he offered in, but it's probably something like that. Have you not read? He, 
who created them from the beginning made them male and female. Jesus begins answering the lawyers about the part of the legal document that they didn't read. Haven't you read all of Moses? You knuckleheads, I thought you were experts in the law. Oh, you only looked at Deuteronomy 24. What about Genesis, where we find the Lord's purposes for marriage being rooted in creation, and then Jesus quotes for them. That's why you have a portion of that verse in capital letters or italics, where it says, In Genesis 1.27, For God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created them. How? Male and female, he created them. Not L-B-G-Q-T-R-X-W-Y-Z, whatever. He created them only two options, male and female. Listen, my brothers and sisters in Christ, your gender can be proved by DNA. The world is crazy. I thought I'd get an amen there. The world is nuts. Did you know the army just instituted 48 different genders you can choose on your induction? They're nuts. There's only two genders. God made you that way from the very beginning, male and female. You see how badly the government can screw things up. Jesus said to the legal eagles, Haven't you guys read the book of Genesis? God, in creation, made men and women. This points back, of course, to the first marriage. Our federal heads. Where all of us sprang from. I don't care if you're purple with yellow polka dots. White, black, brown, yellow. I don't care. We all came from the same parents. Adam and Eve. They wanted a legal opinion, right? He gives them one, right from the Mosaic Law. He refers them back, not to the Constitution necessarily, but to the Magna Carta of the law, the foundation. That's where we find all of our answers for life. You must, there's no equivocation on this, you must Take Genesis literally, or you end up in a pile of doo-doo. There is no such thing as evolution. God made two people in the garden, one male, one female, and we spring from that. It's not a story just to tell us about something about God and how it creates. It's the literal truth. It's the literal truth. Better. Marriage as an institution was created by God and not by man. Jesus doesn't refer here to any rabbinic teaching. He doesn't refer to the Talmud. Stop that. He doesn't refer to any commentaries by men. He goes right back directly to the Mosaic teaching in Genesis chapter 1. These answers are found in the book of beginnings, Genesis. This demonstrates why you and I should know our Bibles, even memorizing portions of it. The answer to the questions of life are not necessarily found in old legal codes 
or in the traditions of men, but they are found in God's original, get this now, design for humankind that began in creation. There's a, there's a ministry out there called Answers in Genesis, whom I don't agree with totally, but they get it right. If you don't know the first 15 chapters of the book of Genesis, you're going to be lost when it comes to your Christian walk. It's essential to understand why and how God created this world, this universe, and men and women who inhabit it. Notice, back in Genesis, it says about male and female that God said his creation was great, good. He blessed them. He blessed our first parents. In that uh, end of that chapter, Genesis chapter 1, it says, And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And God saw what he had made, and behold, he said it was very good. Very good. You don't need to wonder about your gender. God made you very good. Isn't that awesome? The principle drawn from creation is that God made men and women for his purposes. He wanted them to unite and to procreate in an exclusive, unbreakable covenant. That is, just as in the Garden of Eden, he instituted marriage for the first couple, so it is for us today. That event in the Garden, you understand, preceded the giving of the law by thousands of years, at least a thousand years. So the biblical reason for marriage, as found in the book of Genesis, is fourfold. First, marriage was for the continuation of the human race, procreation. Secondly, marriage provided Adam with a helpmate, fellowship with his wife Eve. Thirdly, marriage was given for man to avoid fornication, as we learn in the New Testament. Lastly, marriage was a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. In several of the Old Testament texts which uh, speak about marriage, it speaks of the covenant relationship between husband and wife. For example, Proverbs speaks of this, stating in its proverbial way that the prostitute, I think that was an oblique reference to Stormy Daniels, the prostitute has left the companionship of her youth, that'd be her husband, and in doing so, she's forgotten her covenant with God. There it is. Now, the prophet Malachi says much the same thing when he says, the Lord has been a witness between you, that's the husband, and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion, helpmate, and your wife by covenant. Marriage is a promise, an agreement, a covenant between two people. God made one man and one woman to covenant together as a couple. Now, if that were not so, God could have given Adam multiple wives. Or he could have given Eve multiple partners as well. But he didn't. Again, in Genesis chapter 2, the Lord states in verse 5, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The reason God 
put forth this plan was that it was his intention that a man and a woman come together as one. They must leave the home of their parents and then come together and become one entity. That's his divine plan. That's not man's, though, is it? Man's been trying to disrupt that forever. This had everything to do with the creative order. Man was created in God's image. Marriage is not about the man and the woman. Marriage is all about God. You see, that kind of thinking just doesn't reflect well with Americans today. But it's biblical. Marriage is for the reflection of God's image. Rather than ensuring man's personal happiness, marriage reflects who God is. Both men and women leave their parents' home and... That leaving is assured according to the text, according to the scriptures, because she leaves the home and she enters the husband's home. She takes his name and she takes on his identity. She leaves her identity behind. She no longer was a decker. She became a moffat. And she entered into the home as a moffat and took up my identity as the pastor's wife. So a man leaves his parents and he's joined to his wife. The word leave there in the text means to abandon. And joined means to be glued together. So the two are glued together as one. They identify with... I don't get this stuff where the woman keeps her last name from her, uh, her parents. You know, the hyphenation... Right? I don't get that at all, do you? Just like I don't get it with uh, uh, people from, uh, from other pla- African Americans. It's not African American, it's American. Am I Scottish American? No, I'm an American, right? She's no longer Decker, she's a Moffat. Your identity is in that one flesh relationship that you have chosen and covenanted before God. You've made a contract with another person before God that you will maintain that relationship forever. That's clearly stated in verse 6 when we read, so they, are, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. With what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. In a real sense, we both lose our identities as individuals and we become something completely new when we become one flesh. We identify as a couple, not as an individual any longer. To be sure, a covenantal relationship between two people can be made without sexual union because some people are unable to do that, but the sexual union is one of the building blocks of a successful marriage. Do you know there is only one thing that the Creator said was not good in creation? Do you know what that was? He said, it's not good that man should be alone. That's why he made him a suitable helper. That's why God created Adam for Eve. That's why he created your spouse for you. Adam couldn't find a suitable relationship amongst the animal kingdom. He didn't want to marry a chimpanzee or a gorilla or a a cat or a dog. He wanted to marry someone who he could talk to and love, 
and have a relationship with. God gave Adam Eve to fulfill that. And then he said, once that one flesh relationship is established, let no man separate it. Or as Jesus puts it here in our text, let no man put asunder. Divorce is putting asunder of God's plan, work, and design. We can undo what God has done. We can wreck the plan of God in our own little way. We can break the union that only God can create. You see, your marriage doesn't really belong to you. It belongs to God because he designed you and created you and gifted you with that person. And since God has united the two into one, we should never violate that. Marriage is his doing and not man's doing. That's been lost in our culture today, isn't it? Now they go stand, not even in front of a pastor or a judge, and they just say words to each other, you know? Oh, I love you until the moon comes down to earth, or what, you know, what are the stupid stuff they say? They no longer promise covenant with one another, just say stupid words to each other, and other people think, oh, that sounds so beautiful. It's, it's like a Hallmark movie. There goes Bill. That being said, that man cannot put what God has made asunder. The second question comes up to Jesus, arises out of that. It springs from his teaching, from Genesis and from the created order. But you have to understand, these guys are not going to buy into anything Jesus says. They're the experts. He's the bumpkin. They are not willing to even listen and try to comprehend what he says. They're simply there to undermine him. And certainly their te- his teaching will never influence their behavior in any way. What they were teaching was that the Mosaic law allowed men to divorce their wives. And Jesus, having, con- having not convinced them, they asked the second question in verse 7. Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and to send her away? If, as you say, that God created marriage as an unbreakable covenant between two people, then why, why in the world would Moses say it was okay to give her a certificate of divorce and then to send her away? And Jesus will answer this very clearly. You see, if you look back at Deuteronomy 24, which I put on the screen, it doesn't say that Moses was commanding this to be done at all. God did not command that they divorce through Moses. He only what? Permitted divorce. God didn't command it. He only permitted divorce. There's a huge difference between commanding something and permitting something. I'd never command someone to go jump off the bridge over I-5. But they are certainly permitted to do so if they choose to. Neither Moses nor God Almighty could ever be accused of evil, which divorce is. It emanates from the disobedience of the hearts of men. So then why did God allow it? I believe God allowed Moses to give certificates of divorce in order to protect Jewish women from being used and abused by their husbands. Instead of being able to just step out of the house and say, I divorce thee, I divorce thee, now, under the Mosaic law, permitted by Moses, they had to go to a lawyer 
to ascribe and get a writ of divorcement, an official document in writing that would protect the wife from being harmed by the culture around her. This was a great act of compassion. They were divorcing their wives anyway, right? So this act of compassion saw the helpless state of the wives in the Hebrew society, and Moses acted. This required that time pass. They'd have to go and seek this writ of divorcement. They'd have to go to a scribe. So a certain amount of required time in which both couples could change their hearts and minds about it. It also would require that the husband return the dowry that the wife brought into the marriage in full. So the, the documentation of the divorce and the money given back to the woman would allow her to live for some time effectively on her own and to pursue remarriage. We also must remember this. The law of Moses was only temporary. The law of Moses was... What we're looking at is Jesus speaking to Jews under the law, under the paradigm of the Mosaic law. This was directly applicable to the Jews, but it is not directly applicable to Christians today who are under grace. The law is for Jews and grace is for believers who are Christians. Here we have in creation, however, the timeless truth, the ideal being put forth. Please understand this. The ideal is that man never divorce, right? Well, if you go back to creation, the ideal was that man would never sin. Did man sin? Did God make provision for that sin? Did man get married? Did they get divorced? Did God make provision for it? Yes. Yes. So why then did Moses allow divorce? Looking at verse 8, you get your answer. You know this already. Your hardness of heart. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but, contrastive, that's a big but, from the beginning it has not been this way. All the way back to creation. Once again, Jesus takes them. Moses permitted divorce because man has a wicked and hardened heart towards the rule of God in his life. Etow! Etow! Etow. And you remember that? It is true! It is true. That's what the tribesmen yelled out when they heard the gospel for the first time, preached by the new tribes missionaries. Don't you remember that video? Duh! I guess not. Every human being has been marred by sin, defaced by sin. All marriages are affected by sin. Think about it. The Lord permits you to sin, doesn't he? Yes? Yes. Even after you trusted him? Yes. So, too, the Lord allowed Israelites to divorce even though it was not his will. The foundation for an abundant life is found in the book of Genesis. God gave man in that book a set of principles to follow, the Jews to follow. These principles were for their 
good, for their welfare, for the welfare of the whole human family. God gave the ideal of marriage so that the marriage would have its best chance to succeed, to function, for the couple to be happy in a sin-sick world. If you have a godly marriage, it will protect your home, your spouse, and your family. It was given for your good and your blessing. A marriage that lives up to the ideal, whether that marriage be amongst Jews, Christians, or pagans, will be blessed. There it is. God's principles are true for all people, not just believers. So so Jesus now completely agrees with Moses that God did indeed permit divorce, not for the good of man, but because they were rotten to the core and backslidden. And in verse 8 we see that God's ideal for fidelity in marriage is from the very beginning. It was from the get-go, from the garden, and it's been so ever since. The ideal is that man should never divorce. God commanded man to Never divorce, but he permits it because of the hardness of the human heart. Now, I say to you, as believers today in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you should never utter the words, I want a divorce. And yet, God will forgive. If we do, do it. I've experienced that in my marriage with Sue, she's been forgiven. This should not surprise us, though. God often forgives things that are wrong. For example, do you remember when Rahab lied about the Israelite spies being hidden on her roof? Didn't God forgive her? Didn't God bless her and kept her alive? Yes. Sometimes the Lord permits sin for a greater purpose. Yet the ideal leaves no room for divorce, and yet he allows it because of our hardened hearts. It's never his will, and yet we can override his purposes and sin, and still he forgives the sinfulness of men in Christ Jesus. Did you notice how Jesus connects the first century century evil of the Jews to whom Moses is speaking with, the rebellious fathers of the past with those to whom he's speaking with now? You can see that clearly in the pronouns that are used. Looking back at the text, notice that Moses only permitted divorce because of your hardness of heart. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. You see, Jesus is connecting the two. Just as the fathers in the wilderness rebelled against the will of God, so were these religious elites, the priests, The scribes, the lawyers of the day, were in rebellion against God, just like the fathers in the wilderness of sin. Jesus, looking them straight in their eyes, challenges them with this when he says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Wow, what does that mean? They commit adultery except for immorality. This text has challenged believers and pastors and expositors since it was uttered by the Lord Jesus in the first century. 
But I believe this is connected to the seventh commandment in Exodus chapter 20. Adultery is the breaking of the physical covenant between a man and a woman. Sexual sin breaks that covenant. Moses taught that such immorality effectively broke the covenant. This logically freed the offended party to remarry, for they were not guilty of adultery. Only when that offending party uh, had union with another woman was there adultery. Now, many folks wrestle with this statement. Some believe if they're divorced, either for good or for ill, that when they enter a new relationship, that adultery takes place. This new relationship, however, replaces the old one, which has died. That's what adultery does. It kills, it separates, it breaks the old relationship, according to Jesus in this statement based on the seventh commandment of Exodus 20. So the old relationship is now broken, which only death can break. But also, Jesus now gives this exception clause. Not only does death break the relationship, but so does immorality. There it is. There's no divorce for Jewish couples unless death comes and separates or sexual immorality. Marital unfaithfulness. This is the only exception to the rule given by Jesus to Jews under the law. Now, some in Christendom today will go back to this and try to apply it to the church today. But Jesus is not speaking to a church that is not existent at this time. He's speaking to Jews under the law, under the law of Moses, under Exodus chapter 20. Now, what is the word sexual fornication, adultery, mean? Well, the Greek word that's used here is pornea. That defines any type of sexual sin which can be committed. It's not limited to sexual relationships between married parties, but includes unmarried, such as premarital sex. It would include such things as bestiality, incest, masturbation, uh, any kind of sexual sin outside of the confines of marriage. Now, people disagree with that, too. There's all sorts of thoughts on it and definitions. But... I believe it speaks of any kind of sexual sin that's committed against your partner, against the union which was blessed by God, that one man, one woman relationship. Any kind of sin that can be identified as sexual unfaithfulness breaks that relationship. Do you have to seek a divorce? Of course not. Jesus was simply recognizing in this statement man's sinfulness, that it can undo and damage a marriage so terribly that it just can't continue because it will cause hurt to both parties, especially the offended party. He allows for the reality of man's hardened heart and the tensions that it brings to the ideal relationship that God intended. So he gives acceptance to this one concept for the Jew 
under the law that sexual unfaithfulness can break that relationship. Once again, let me affirm that Jesus is speaking to Jews under the law. Jesus defines marriage as being rooted in the creation account. It's a covenant sealed by physical union between a man and a woman and is meant to be irrevocable and permanent. Such a bond, then, can only be broken by physical death or by sexual infidelity. But we should never lose sight of the ideal. We should never lose sight of the ideal. We should never settle for the lesser evil. We should always want what God said was very good. So, just because you've hardened your heart to the will of God and you've asked for divorce doesn't mean that that is the best thing for you either. Jesus was saying it was exception, but he wasn't calling for it or commanding it. So the disciples are there listening to all of this, trying to take it all in, and they're thinking about it and reasoning about it in their own hearts and minds, and they come to the understanding of the implications of Jesus' saying when they say, since there's no grounds for divorce outside of this, well, we'd be better off not getting married at all. Just staying single. Look at the third question posed this time by the disciples of Jesus saying, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. Holy cow. They realize no one can ever live up to the ideal. All men at some point are going to express marital unfaithfulness. As Jimmy Carter once so famously said, I've never had adultery, but I've committed adultery in my heart when I lusted after another woman. You see, the standards are so high that all of us fall short. That doesn't mean you have to divorce your wife. You can do what Jesus taught in Matthew 18 and choose to seek forgiveness and restoration. Jesus gave marriage, God gave marriage to be a blessing to all people for their good, for their betterment. But I'd like you to notice, once again, that pesky little if that's found in this statement. If the relationship of man with his wife is like this. Notice the if. That's a first-class conditional clause that could be treated as the word since. It could be translated just the same as the word since. So since the relationship of a man and a woman is like this, that's the reality of it. We're all fallen creatures. We all commit sexual immorality in some way in our hearts. It doesn't have to be the physical act of adultery with another woman. It can simply be lusting after someone. The bar is really set high here, isn't it? That's why their response is, hey, we'd, better, we'd be better off staying signal, single than getting married. But you know the problem with that is? You're still going to sin in your heart and mind, aren't you? Now looking at verse 11. He continued, he said to them, Not all men can accept this statement, but only to those whom it has been given. Not all men can accept this statement on marriage and his teaching. Some people don't want to look at marriage this way. Some men refuse to look at it this way. And women just as some refuse the gift of eternal life. 
Jesus says, if you want to be like that, then be, remain celibate. celibate. You, can, you can avoid the pain of breaking up with someone. You can avoid all that pain by staying celibate. And the Catholic Church tried to institute this, didn't they, amongst those who served them. They made it legal, lawful, that celibacy was required of priests and nuns and monks. They teach that in order to be more spiritual than other people, one must remain single if you're going to be dedicated to God. That is, you can't get married. That's not what Jesus was teaching. We're going to see that in verse 12. You can't legislate singleness. It's not better that you stay single. Looking at verse 12, we read that only special cases can stay single. So when when these guys are wondering about it, Jesus says to them, for there are eunuchs, that's someone who cannot have sex, for there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. Then there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. So what in the world does that mean? What is a eunuch? The term eunuch in the Greek is from the word enochios. It refers to a bedroom guard. Okay? A bedroom guard. Historically, eunuchs were men whose job it was to guard the bedroom door of the king's wives and concubines. He was there to protect them from others. To ensure sexual fidelity to the king, the bedroom guards were castrated by a physician. That made them, hopefully, less of a threat to those whom they guarded. The second kind of eunuch Jesus talks about here are men who have undergone castration in order to prevent their high voices from deepening in puberty. Some were in choirs, and so they didn't want to lose their high voices. And they, you know, they had a falsetto voice like Frankie Valley. Hmm. Never mind. Jesus recognizes that some men will not marry because they were born that way. Some men will not marry because they were made that way. And some men will choose not to marry. Those are them that have voluntarily become eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. Now, again, this is the false teaching that comes out of the Roman Catholic Church that priests, nuns, monks must be celibate. But they haven't chosen that for themselves. They've been forced that way by the law of the Roman Catholic Church. Jesus is speaking once again to a religious audience, and he's speaking basically to his disciples when he answers this question. And he's talking about them and those who will come and serve him in the future in the kingdom of heaven, directing people to eternal life. Many will sacrifice the privilege of marriage in order to serve the Lord better. Pretty high and tough standard. Paul is said to be a man who forsook marriage in order to serve the Lord by traveling 15,000 miles and, uh, on foot and by countless miles by sea in order to take the gospel to those who needed to hear it. We should never confuse this statement, however, with ascetic celibacy. We should never understand this as that which was practiced by monks, nuns, and priests. They serve a church and not the Lord. 
people never commanded anyone to a monastic life. He said that the highest ideal was for man to be joined to a woman in marriage. That is the greatest thing you can do to be married to another person for life to the exclusion of all others until death do you part. What a wonderful thing God created, the institution of marriage for men to enjoy. However, there are some whom he calls to serve him and to proclaim the kingdom of God by living celibate. So how do we apply this to our lives today? We must remember we are members of the congregation of the righteous. So we must apply good hermeneutical principles to our understanding of this text. Once again, Matthew is writing a Jewish audience under the Jewish law, the Mosaic law. He's not writing to believers under grace. We must understand that Jesus points to the ideal marriage once for all. One man, one woman, with no breaks intended until death. He intended that to be the reality for all people. However, from the beginning of creation, this standard or ideal has been broken, and God allows those who break it to be forgiven and to remarry. It is his will, however, that once you've made that promise to another and you understand the depths of these truths, which some of us never understood before in our previous marriages, once you understand this truth, you are to remain in that relationship until broken by death. Remember what happened to Adam and Eve when they sinned? The one thing they were not supposed to do? Not eat of the tree of the garden of good and evil, remember? And they broke that, and what happened? They got booted out of the garden. She gave birth in pain. He had to till the ground. There are consequences. God forgives, but there are always consequences for breaking his ideal will. Never forget that God permits you to sin, but there are consequences for choosing wrongly, even though he forgives and restores. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the teaching of Jesus. Help us, Lord, to rightly understand. Help us to make a commitment today in our hearts and minds, whether we're single or married, Father, to be faithful to these truths. Never let us utter those words, I want a divorce. Never let them pass our lips, Lord. Help us always instead to say, I love the Lord. And to recommit to finding the forgiveness in one's own heart for those who might have harmed or hurt you, even committed adultery. Help us, Lord, to live up to the ideal. It is our responsibility as an individual believer in Christ to live up to the standards of Christ and to remain faithful to the one to whom we are joined. Help us to do that, Lord, because in our humanity we are unable. It is only by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and the word of God that we are able to do so. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.